Welcome to Global Data Pod Research Wrap. I'm Nora Santivani, and joining me today is Mike Faroli, Chief US Economist. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Nora? I'm good. I'm good. So today we're here to talk about financial conditions. And, you know, this is a topic that's uh, been on our radar ever since the Fed started its aggressive hiking cycle. And I think it's really become a renewed focal point for markets over the last couple of weeks, right, as the, the yields on 10-year U.S. Treasury debt spiked to 5%. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of a broad consensus that financial conditions have tightened, uh, I guess, uh, but there's much less agreement or indeed clarity about the extent of that tightening or even how to think about, you know, the impact of various interest rates on growth. Um, I was very excited to see the Fed coming out with an actual model which seeks to quantify this impact and equally helpfully Mike has published a research piece unpacking uh, this financial conditions index and how to interpret it so I'm very excited about this. Uh, Mike, uh, why don't we start off by um, just maybe defining a bit the term financial conditions. It's quite a vague concept that seems to take many shapes and forms. Uh, how, how does the Fed define it? Um, and then we can go into their index and yeah. how it's different from other FCIs and so on. I, I guess the first thing I'd say about financial conditions is that it's plural, right? So we know what we can, it's easy to say what a financial condition is. So one could be um, the dollar, one could be the 10 year rate, which you mentioned, one could be the stock, market. Uh, these things usually move together, but not in lockstep. Um, so a lot of people have tried to summarize this plurality into a unity of a financial condition index. Uh, and so this usually takes the form of some kind of like principal component analysis or something that basically tries to weight um, uh, the various conditions into one single number. Mm -hmm. And then they look at whether that number is you know, higher, lower than average. And, and then you can take these indices, regress them against GDP and maybe, you know, um, get some kind of relation. Um, so what the Fed did and the Fed staffers did was say, you know, rather than just kind of take a simple, you know, take the approach I just mentioned, uh, they said, well, you know, we have a suite of models that relate each of these financial conditions to GDP and to, to the economy. So, for example, you know, equity prices mostly affect the economy through their impact on uh, household wealth and consumer spending. Um, you know, maybe that it also affects business investment spending. That's a little more debatable. Um, something like the dollar is pretty straightforward, right? So the dollar matters for the U.S. economy for its uh, effect on export demand and import demand, and then the overall balance of that, how it affects domestic production. So it takes all of these different models and says, all right, well, what's happened and what is that in these various conditions and what does that mean for GDP growth? So it, it actually takes out that intermediate step of regressing the index on GDP and says, well, we we have models that tell us what mm -hmm. these different things sh should do. And so let's just see what, um, you know, what that actually implies. So that's the spirit of, uh, mm -hmm. of the Fed's FCIs. All right. So um, what is it actually showing us? So what is this impact? Um, so, you know, one thing I, that's a little bit unusual about these, um, the way the Fed 
produces it is it says, well, let's look at the change in financial conditions over the past three years or over the past year. And what does that imply about growth over the next year? Mm-hmm. And right now, what that's showing is that over the past three years, which is their baseline number, the change in financial conditions is a headwind to growth of over the next year, over the next four quarters of a little less than a percentage point. Um, over the last year, the change in conditions over the last year is, um, is kind of neutral for, uh, for growth. Now, in part, that reflects the fact that a year ago, as you may recall, you know, late last summer, we also had a big spike in, um, in higher in interest rates. So the change on a year ago basis isn't as large. Uh, now, this is kind of very different from the way most financial conditions indices are constructed where you can look at the change month to month and say, well, you know, the September number tells you um, if you look at September relative to um, August that, you know, that has a straightforward interpretation, whereas it's a little less clear uh, in the Fed's um, FCI that, you know, that um, comparison. So that was part of what this note was to do was let's, um, you know, the Fed in their, in this FCI, they also basically gives us the impulse responses for the various um, uh, uh, conditions and how they affect growth. And so what we try to do was really isolate the move over the last um, six weeks, roughly, and say, uh, how has what's transpired recently affected the outlook for next year? Okay, fine. So, um, yeah, I mean, when I when I look at the the FCIG, what I can see is around the beginning of this year, it's showing that financial conditions were a drag of about one point five percentage points on GDP, and then as you say, that that tightening got kind of got taken out, and then it moved to a neutral position around August, and then since then it's been pointing to a larger drag again, right? Uh, so, like, I, I wanted to understand, first of all, like, why was that tightening getting taken out? Is it because of some benign moves in some of these underlying variables? Was it, like, equity prices going up, house prices going up? Like, what's actually going into the uh, index and what was causing it to remove some of that tightening? And then what are the main drivers since August that are creating this greater drag according yeah. to the index? I think this is a little bit why I found the the presentation of the FCI, uh, the Feds. Uh, I should have said the the full title of it is FCIG, which is Financial Conditions Impulse on Growth. So it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think one of the issues with the presentation is, so as you say, for the one year look back window, it would suggest um, no headwind to um, to growth next year. Uh, now that's partly be you know, the using a one-year look-back window, right? So um, that doesn't mean that financial conditions are neutral, right? All it means is relative to a year ago, there's no change, meaningful change in the financial right. condition impulsive growth. If you look relative to three years ago, which is, you know, before the Fed started tightening, uh, and maybe why they use the three-year as their baseline, you see that that change um, still implies uh, a headwind to growth next year. So 
it's kind of hard to read the SCIG in an absolute sense of saying our financial conditions tight or easy. It's tight or uh, easy yeah. once a year ago. So that to me was there are a lot of strengths to this FCIG, but I think this is maybe a um, uh, an area where it's perhaps a bit um, you know counterintuitive. Let's say. Right. Okay. Okay. So the the, the sort of main result we've uh, you've presented is this um, roughly. Um, third of a percentage point off the level of uh, GDP end of next year, right? That's what the tightening in financial conditions uh, yeah. since August are, are doing. Now, to me, that appears fairly modest. I understand that you're saying it doesn't impact, include this sort of cumulative impact of the, the earlier mm -hmm. tightening and, and, and the fact that the, the stance is quite restrictive. Are there any other sort of important emissions um, from the model that we should be aware of, like other channels or variables that it's not including that may also be delivering some tightening? Yeah. So, and I think the authors were, you know, pretty transparent in saying one of the, um, you know, one of the financial conditions not included is uh, bank credit and bank credit availability, right? So ever since the March banking, you know, regional banking crisis, I think there has been um, some evidence that bank credit is getting tighter. Um, certainly the senior loan officer survey would suggest that uh, they don't, uh, that's certainly a cre uh, financial condition. I don't think there's any debate about that. They didn't include it in part because um, outside of the senior loan officer survey, which is only quarterly, we don't really have good um, high frequency uh, measures of bank credit availability, right? So um, so presumably the headwind from credit conditions is tighter than the result uh, we arrived at, but, but it's also difficult to quantify. Um, and as I said, the authors were pretty transparent about that omission. All right, yeah, so I can see here that you've broken down um, the FCIG into, in it, into its main constituents. So you've got the, what is this, one, two, three, seven is it seven variables yeah seven um, seven variables and um and then you've looked at the changes in those variables uh between august and sort of early mid-october um and then you've presented um whether they're a tailwind or a headwind to to growth were there any sort of interesting results from from this analysis that you'd want to highlight here i mean you know there are some obvious ones and less obvious ones for me yeah. from, from this, this part of the analysis. Yeah, so I guess a few things I would say. One is that the biggest headwind is from uh, dollar strength, right? And um, this is something we've highlighted in the past is that even though the dollar move that was um, uh, captured was only about, well, only about, was 3%. Uh, it still implies a drag of growth next year of about two tenths, of, almost two tenths of a percent. Um, uh, and this is something we've highlighted in the past is that if you believe the models, and the models I think are pretty well estimated, um, the dollar is a pretty important um, uh, financial condition. And so whenever, you know, occasionally I'll get asked by people, do you think the Fed is like, you know, taking note of what's happening in the dollar? I, I, Certainly, I mean, and at least in the Fed's modeling, it's always been a very important um, uh, transmission of policy into the real economy. 
I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a little surprised by the result. Like I always thought, you know, U.S. large closed economy, you know, exchange rate matters less. I mean, certainly for emerging markets, we know the dollar matters a lot. It's uh, currently the appreciation we've had, the 5% appreciation has been a big drain on global liquidity. It's weighed on EM trade and capital flows and currencies, and it's limiting the ability of some central banks to cut. But when I thought for, you know, the U.S. economy itself, I never thought of the dollar as being, you know, it seems to dominate the move in um, in, in yeah. this analysis that you've looked at. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I would say is, um, um, yeah, even for the U.S., you still have, you know, import and export shares of, you know, roughly 10 and or 14 and 10 percent of GDP. Mm -hmm. So um, if you have elasticities that are close-ish to one, um, you know, it's not kind of hard to see how you get these kind of numbers. Um, uh, I guess the other thing I would say is the interest rate effect is not, at least in in the Fed's modeling here, there's not like one interest rate. There are a number of interest rates. Um, and cumulatively, those are about as much of a headwind as a dollar, right? Particularly when you take the mortgage, uh, right? Oh, well, let me just back up, slow down a little bit. So they have, of the interest rates included, they have the 30-year mortgage rate, 10-year mm -hmm. uh, treasury rate, Fed funds rate, and then uh, the triple B corporate bond rate. Um, yeah. And uh, what you see is that the headwind from mortgage rates and bond uh, corporate bond rates is, you know, also something like if you add them up, close to the same effect of, of the dollar, which is a little less than two tenths. Um, one of the interesting uh, features here of this model is that, and somewhat uh, unusual, is that once you account or holding constant mortgage rates and corporate bond rates, higher treasury rates are actually stimulative. <laughs> right. And why is that? Uh, well, it's because higher treasury rates mean that the treasury is uh, pumping more interest income into the hands of uh, uh, the private sector, or at least the domestic private sector that holds the treasury debt. Uh, now, if you have, and again, the effect isn't huge. Um, one, the effect isn't huge, this, this counterintuitive treasury effect. Two, if you were to have a parallel shift higher in all three uh, longer term interest rates, mortgages, corporate bonds, and treasuries, that would be obviously the cumulative effect of all of those is a headwind to growth. But um, again, holding constant, the two yeah. private sector borrowing rates, which is, you know, we think of higher treasury rates as being a headwind because I think, of course, well, if treasury rates go up, corporate bond and mortgage rates and every other private borrowing rate are going to go up. But once you account for that, the actual impact of treasury, higher treasuries is higher treasury rates is higher treasury interest payments to the private sector, which interestingly is something that's been, you know, coming up more and more in, in discussions, which is, um, you know, hey, you know, the retiree in Florida is, is getting more money on their, um, you know, money market fund, you know, but that's, uh, that's coming from somewhere, right? A lot of it's coming from uh, either bills or Fed repo, which ultimately, you know, comes back to, um, you know, the the, the treasury. Um, so, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you say, the income effect is higher than than it used to be, and uh, you're you're mentioning some spe specific numbers. So, by your calculations, next year Treasury interest payments to domestic residents are set to climb to over two percent of GDP levels last seen, seen uh, during the Volcker disinflation. So, um, you know, it's quite a quite a big move um, by historical mm -hmm. standards as well. Um, okay. I mean, one other area I wanted to ask around is, you know, there have been questions around whether the move higher in long-term rates even constitutes tightening if it's merely a reflection of stronger growth. And this is something we hear over and over again as a sort of counter argument, you know, growth has been better than expected. Um, at the same time, we also hear a lot about term premium moving up and, you know, that reflects um, persistent larger budget deficits. And then some of the recent Fed communication has kind of recently reinforced the idea that higher bond yields due to higher term premium could substitute for further tightening. So how should we think about all of this, putting everything yeah. together? So I guess the first thing I would say is um, teasing out whether uh, the tightening in financial conditions is a reflection of um, better growth prospects or whether it's a reflection of changing discount rates and term premia is important for the, from the perspective of policymakers. It's not important from the perspective of forecasters, right? So uh, whether or not, you know, higher equity uh, prices are being driven, what, you know, what factors are driving interest rates higher uh, shouldn't really matter for thinking about the effect of higher mortgage rates on, um, on uh, you know, housing demand, provided you have properly accounted for, you know, everything else going on in the economy that the, you know, that the markets are seeing. For policymakers, however, it does matter, right? Because if, uh, um, again, as you kind of alluded to, if, if financial conditions are tightening because of better growth prospects, that's not a reason for the Fed to sit on its hand because if prospects are better, inflation is mm -hmm. probably going to be uh, risk are going, to, are going to tilt to the upside. Um, in the as it turns out, we uh, and our counterparts in, in rate strategy believe that when it comes to interest rates, a lot of the increase has been driven by term premia, i.e., it's not a reflection mm -hmm. of a higher expected path of the funds rate because of better growth or higher inflation prospects. So in that case, it is simply a headwind to growth, not uh, generated by a change in, in economic expectations. And so therefore uh, can substitute for, um, for, uh, for rate hikes. For rate hikes. And I mean, in terms of equivalence, I think it, the number that's been thrown around, it's roughly equivalent to one hike, 25 basis point hike, right? The sort of impact of the tightening in financial conditions we've seen of late. Um, so does this all mean that, you know, current financial conditions um, and the estimates of an impact is kind of consistent with a Fed that's on hold over the coming months, like all else equal? Is that the way we should yeah. be? Yeah, that's, this? yeah. Okay. that's the way I've been thinking. You know, I think it's interesting, as you say, um, a lot of these changes have had, have occurred, you know, since, um, since the September FOMC, which, uh, which was a meeting where the dot signaled one more hike. But if that extra hike is kind of being effectuated simply through the change in financial conditions, then, um, then they might not need to deliver that hike, which again is a message that was being um, 
that was conveyed, you know, I think pretty clearly by Powell last week. So, um, so we think, you know, that we're probably, probably done here for the hiking cycle, obviously December, um, you know, you, you have two job reports between now and then, which will be pretty important. Um, but the government could be shut down. So we might, <laughs> we might right, not get the right, job right. report. So, yeah. Um, so fed on hold, but it, it kind of sounds like they need to sound hawkish still, right? Like they, they wouldn't want the tightening in financial conditions to be completely unwound and for conditions to start to ease here, right? Because that would then maybe complicate their task. So they're kind of on hold, but with a yeah, well, bias or hawkish bias as, as such. Yeah, the, All I right. think that's right. I mean, they've had a, a, a tightening bias really since the spring of this year. Um, and, you know, in some of those meetings, they tightened some, they just want to, you know, they took a pass. Um, but I think, you know, as long as core PCE is above 3% on a year ago basis, it's going to be, you know, pretty tough to go to a neutral bias, I think. For the Fed. Perfect. Okay. Last bonus question from me, which is not in your note, but I'm curious to hear your view. So the Fed has a dual mandate for monetary policy, uh, full employment and price stability. Does the Fed also have a mandate related to long-term interest rates? And what does that uh, mean in practice? <laughs> It does um, in the Humphrey Hawkins Act of 78. Uh, it's really a three part mandate, full employment, price stability and uh, low long term interest rates. The Fed has reduced this to a dual mandate because um, presumably a lot of the higher nominal interest rates in the 70s was due to a higher um, expected inflation component of nominal interest rates. So if you if you satisfy the price stability mandate, you are inherently going to satisfy the longer term interest rate mandate. So they've kind of reduced, boiled down the three into two. Perfect. Thanks so much, Mike, for your time. We'll wrap up there. Always a pleasure. Yeah, uh, thank, you. thank you to our listeners for tuning into the Global Data Pod Research Wrap, and we hope to continue the conversation on the next episode. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on October 25, 2023.